clock is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. Roar! And open the door to join us for the 32nd meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm obsessed with the fact that Mike Tyson loves pigeons, Meredith. And I'm emulsifying Emu Mike. We meet every week at our clubhouse. We like to call the Dalmatian Station. To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for in unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow. So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. Indeed. What's up, Mike? Oh, you know, Meredith, what's up with you? Um, I saw a creature rescue yesterday. Oh, what happened? When I say creature rescue, that gives it a lot of drama. It wasn't that dramatic, but it was heartwarming. And it involves a creature we just learned about from you a couple weeks ago, the painted turtle. Oh. So I was having a park moment yesterday. I was just kind of sitting on the bench, and it's like right in front of um, the pond that they have there where all the painted turtles hang out. There's like tons and tons and tons of them. I think I talked about it on last week's episode. It's just a wealth of creatures hanging out around this pond. Anyhow, uh, away from the pond, there's like ball fields and stuff. And I happened to notice these little kids were like crouched over something. And then they ran away and I saw that there was a turtle over in the grass. I was like, oh no, how did it get over there? Did it take itself over there? Did it get transplanted? Did somebody pull it out of the pond and put it where it shouldn't be? And they were like doing lawn maintenance that day. So I knew they were going to be like mowing. So I was like, ah! What's going to happen to this turtle? After that, it caught my eye. One of the park people, one of the guys that worked at the park, he had lifted the turtle up and he was like, my good deed for the day. And he like had the turtle, was like lifted up and he like walked it over to the pond and kind of like had to lay down to get close enough to the water or bank to like drop it in. And so he kind of plopped it down. And then promptly after that, the turtle just kind of like shimmied on down into the water. Happy as can be. Little creature rescue, little low stakes creature rescue. Like the turtle probably would have found its way back to the pond eventually, but removing it from the impending mower blades was great. Great move. Oh, that's cute. My Week in Animals was really mostly about pigeons. Yes, they're there. They're always there for you. Yeah, they're quite contentious. I really haven't been leaving my home that much, but I feel like every time I do, there's just a group of pigeons that are kind of waiting for me. Of course they are. And they kind of follow me around and they just seem to be expecting that I'll feed them at some point, which really isn't what I'm trying to do. No, I wouldn't recommend it. But maybe they just think you're somebody who's deserving of an entourage. Uh. And they choose to kind of walk behind you and coo over your every need. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I feel good about that. Yeah. I mean, my media consumption lately has been a sort of return to curiosity stream. Yes. But mostly what I'm watching right now are history things, like about the Bronze Age and whatever. And this is totally because I'm just lost in my computer game civilization, you know, Civ Six. Right. And I have to say that watching these like Bronze Age, early ancient history content that's available uh-huh. is that a lot of it seems to be informed by the visuals of Civ or maybe vice versa. Like I definitely see a correlation between this sort of 
you know, silly strategy game that's like really pretty deep and you can go any direction you want with it. And then historical documentaries made for kind of amateur curious viewers. So I found that to be thrilling. Like literally you see, um, I guess, crossover in the imagery. Maybe it's just that maps look like maps and boats look like (laughs) boats. You know what I mean? Yeah. It kind of feels like even some of the music and everything sometimes it's like, oh, this is just like I'm finding a new island with my little boat. I wonder what kind of overlap exists between the creators, like the musicians and the artists that write this stuff. So do you think maybe like, oh, this guy, John over here, he's got experience on Civ. Maybe uh, maybe we can tap him for the History Channel's new Bronze Age Exploded. I think that's a really great line of inquiry. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Meredith, we should announce that we're going to take a week off of our regularly scheduled formatted episode next week because our sponsor, Brand Clubby, is going to present a special infomercial special highlighting some of our favorite commercials for our favorite Brand Clubby products. Yes, I'm actually very excited to hear them all in one place, all together. Yeah, it's just really meant to be a sort of relic for Brand Clubby super fans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And to introduce some new products to you creatures out there. For those of you who haven't yet dove into the vast commercial offerings of Brand Clubby. Yeah, it really is amazing just the variety of products and the specialization of products. I'm I am constantly impressed. Me too. Me too. What can't they do? Uh well, yeah, Meredith, I, I don't know. I feel like that's kind of everything that we have to address right now. Yeah, I think we should just get into it. Yeah, we'll kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. Let's do it. Are you ready? Okay. Taxona you. Taxona we. Taxana who? Taxana me. Kingdom. Animalia. This can't be a surprise. Phylum. Mollusca. The mollusk journey continues. Class. Monoplacophora and aplacophora. A two-class presentation. Order. This is the voice of the mollusk. <gasps> the Um, I don't really mean to cause a problem, Voice of the Mollusk. I still want to cover all the extant mollusk classes, and I thought that the monoplacophorans and aplacophorans would make a cute pairing. The Great Mollusk Council demands that you name not a single species from these, but two most mysterious taxons. Okay, Voice of the Mollusk, whatever you say. It's kind of weird to just stop the taxonomy cheer here, but I guess that's what we're doing. Can I go back to my presentation now? You may, but remember, the wandering eye of the Great Mollusk Council is always monitoring your actions. From mantle to foot. From Radula to Asphradia. Our visceral mass preserves our traditions. And protects the ancient mollusk secret. <gasps> Whoa, Mike, you really stirred up some detritus. I'm a little nervous about this great Marlis Council, Meredith. I got to be honest, and I don't want to upset them. I don't blame you. I can, oh, I, that's the stuff of nightmares is um, somehow having the great foot of the great Marlis Council come down upon you. And what a foot it is. So who are we dealing with today? 
let's do a zoomed out overview of the mollusk journey. Okay. So there's really only three classes of mollusks left, extant classes of mollusks, mollusks that are still alive today. Right. We have our cephalopods, which are like squids, cuttlefish, octopuses, everything. We have our monoplacophorans, which bear one plate. You remember polyplacophora, many mm-hmm. plate bearers. These are single plate bearers, so they only have one shell. Okay, got it. Unlike, Unlike the, the bivalves. bivalves. Well, similar to snails, but they're not gastropods. Got it. So there's the monoplacophora, and then we have the aplacophora, which is another class, and they have no shells. So kind of like the slug in the gastropod analogy. Sure, yes. Like a slug is a snail without a home. Right, but the aplacophorans aren't like monoplacophorans without a home. It's a different class. I see. Okay, I gotcha. I gotcha. I am going to speak generally about these because, again, I'm trying not to aggravate the Great Mollusk Council. Got it. So the monoplacophorans were actually thought to be extinct until 1952 when they were found off the Pacific coast of Costa Rica. And they tend to be a very deep sea species. They live at the bottom of the deep sea. They have a shell that's limpet-like, which is a type of gastropod. Okay. is a limpet, but it's not a gastropod. And it's different than some other mollusks that we've encountered because it has a segmented body, so it has repetition of organs. So in that sense, it's kind of worm-like. It has repeated organs. It has as many as six kidneys, quote-unquote. They're actually nephridia. It has three to six pairs of gills, which are actually stenidia, and they're located on a curved line along the foot. They're mollusks with one shell. They like to kind of clamp on the side of things. It's hard to get specific information about this because the mollusk council is so tight-lipped, I guess you could say, although they don't really have lips. Tight radula. I've also been corrected. It's radula. Radula? It's not necessarily radula. It's just a lot. It's a lot. I don't necessarily have a lot of good information about either of these two classes because they're kind of outside of the realm of like sexy mollusks, you know, not to put value judgment on it. There was a 2006 molecular study that suggests that our monoplacophorans, which are these single-shelled mollusks, Mm -hmm. and polyplacophora, which are the chitons from last week's episode, that they're a clade Okay, with the proposed name Cerealia. It's my daughter's name. They all show a variable number of serially repeated gills and, uh, Eight sets of dorsoventral pedal retractor muscles. <laughs> okay, so hold on. So the repeating in this case is referring to the fact that they have these segmented bodies that have like these series of organs, correct? Yes, more or less. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of writing about these with extant fossil species like a Cambrian, Devonian species that have been described as monoplacophorans. It's a little blurry. There is some inclusion of gastropods in the lumped term that is contentious. It's a very slippery taxon. <laughs> and it's very difficult to kind of pin down what exactly is a monoplacophoran. Is it simply like everything that has one shell that's not a gastropod? Hmm. It's really tricky. I know this is all very loosey-goosey, the wandering eye of the Mollusk Council sees far and wide. It's true. I just don't want to get locked it's in. True. There's not a ton of individual species of these monoplacophorans. 
there's in fact only 31 described living species. I would assume there would just be like 600 or something. No, 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 no. They're seabed dwellers generally. It's a very ancient living fossil kind of vibe going on with these monoplacophorans. Got it. And the images that I've seen, it's just kind of stuck on the side of this glass thing. You can kind of see up underneath it. There's uh, the classic mantle underneath the shell. The mantle grows into the shell. That's something we're familiar with. There's a foot, which is a pretty typical quality of mollusks. Most mollusks have that. Yep. The visceral mass is the same. We're encountering a lot of the same kind of shapes and structures and that sort of thing. But again, it's a little different with how the segments are, but I couldn't find tons of clear, crystal clear information on that. I think with both of these classes, one of the things that I really walked away with is that in terms of studying mollusks, these don't have the same interest as the other mollusk classes. The same interests? Like horseback riding? Humans don't seem as interested in them is really what I mean to say. They meant like hobbies. No, I I can't speak to... The hobbies of the... What they do for fun. Okay, so that's the little monoplacophoran moment. And so now let's go to the aplacophora. Now, these are mollusks without shells. A problem with the definition of atonal music is that it describes what the music isn't as opposed to what the music is. Right. So calling these aplacophora is really a comment on what they are not as opposed to what they is. Right. They are just kind of worm-like. They resemble flatworms, Okay. actually. They're generally shorter than two inches long, and they're usually epibenthic, which is a new word. You remember the benthic zone, Meredith, right? Yes. It's the seabed. Yes. It's that kind of first layer of silt mm-hmm. at the very bottom of the seabed. And there's a lot of creatures that live there. Yes. Because there's all this kind of detrius that falls from the organic life above them, and they're just bottom dwellers, and they can kind of eat. That's where our crustacean crabby friends live, you know. Yeah. And then you remember the tusk shells, how they would burrow into the benthic zone. Right. So we have infauna and epifauna, okay? Okay. Infauna burrows into the benthic layer, and epifauna lives above the benthic layer. Okay, so like sitting on top. Yes. Okay. I think that you could say enbenthic and epibenthic. I didn't encounter enbenthic, but I countered epibenthic. Okay. So like epibenthic and infauna, like there's, you know, the prefixes and suffixes and everything can get kind of moved around a little bit. Yeah. So our aplacophora friends will be enbenthic. So they will burrow into the benthic zone. So in that sense, they're like the tusk shell. Got it. And they're almost like a little naked tusk shell, you know, in a way. Yeah. I'm really wearing out this uh, this joke, but monoplacophora is like a tusk shell without a home. That would be an aplacophora, aplacophora is like a tusk shell without a home. Got it. Okay. Aplacophora. Got it. Yeah, it's similar. Their anatomy is different, you know. Right. Of course. Of course. They possess both a radula and also a style, which is a fun part of gastropod anatomy, actually. You, did you encounter this at all? I didn't, or at least I don't remember it, but work. Yeah, it's in all gastropods, they have a part of the stomach that's furthest from the esophagus, and that's called the style sac, <laughs> and it's filled with cilia, and the cilia beat in a rotary motion, pulling the food 
forward in a steady stream from the mouth. <laughs> I'm going to start calling my laundry bag my style sack. That's a good name for it. Yeah. Well, there was a period where these Aplacophora were classified as sea cucumbers in the echinoderm family. Got it. Your friends, the echinoderms, the sea stars and so-called starfish that aren't actually fish, they're echinoderms. Exactly. Thank you for reiterating that. We can't say it enough. In 1987, the Aplacophorans were divided into two separate clades, the Solenogastres and the Cotto foveta. Sound like warring Italian families. They do. Capulets and Montagues. There's 320 different species total of these Aplacophorans, described species that is. Yep. And I think that really a lesson that we have here between these two classes is that they're both relatively newly described or rediscovered Mm -hmm. and their numbers are relatively limited. Just to give us a little bit of context here. So arthropods make up the majority of described species. It's something around like 75%. Right. This is like all species. All species of all animals. Mollusks have the second most number of described species. And so then when you start looking at like, well, what's the distribution within the phylum, Mm -hmm. we have 70,000 described gastropods. We have 20,000 described bivalves. We have 1,000 described polyplacophora. We have 900 described cephalopods. We have 500 described tusk shells. Then we get down to where we are now, which is the aplacophora. We have 320 described species. And again, they're just kind of wormy-like, you know? There's not these exciting tentacles or boat-shaped feet or anything like that. And then we get down to the monoplacophorans, and there's only 31. So it's just a little bit like, uh... Okay, you know, like, what's going on down here? (laughs) And I have kind of shared most of the information that I could find easily and understand easily. You know what I mean? It's like even the actual mollusk anatomy that I've kind of come to be familiar with starts to break down a little bit, you know? It's a great exercise in just making work, you know, what you've got and making sense of a really complex set of creature characteristics and names and concepts and anatomy. It's a lot. So bravo for this work you're doing. Thanks. But also bravo to the scientists that are, you know, so specialized. The thought of even identifying like 31 of these things, you know, with such specificity that they're their own species. Does that work alone? I mean, 31 is such a small number relative to all the other numbers. Still, like that amount of detail of such like a tiny, tiny creature that we by no means are encountering every day. Not to say that means they're not worth studying, but it's just a reminder of the biodiversity and what that means. Yeah, I think that's nice. It must have also been exciting for these scientists who had found fossils of these creatures from long ago to, in 1952, discover one living. Oh my gosh, yeah, exactly. And the fossil record indicates that the ancestral mollusk, which I guess is the mollusk from which all other mollusks descended, was monoplacophorin-like, and that these polyplacophora arose within the monoplacophora. So that's interesting. So these chitons had one shell, one valve, and now they have eight valves. Yeah. But yeah, I feel like that's kind of really all I can safely tell you without 
potentially angering the great mollusk council. Do you have any questions or concerns? I, I realize this is a little bit of a kind of lame survey, but no. in the interest of preserving my mollusk journey, I wanted to really knock out all the extant classes and the limited information in these two classes really made me feel like combining them and just addressing them was a worthwhile mollusk pursuit. Absolutely. Again, one of the things to be taken away here is that, you know, there's not as much info. The amount of details available to us are limited with some of these creatures. And that reality in and of itself is something to learn and take away here and why that is. And, you know, perhaps the limitations of studying these deep sea creatures and lack of interest, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know what it means, but it's definitely all information that's worthwhile to take away from this. Yeah. I think that it's a exciting line of inquiry, and I wouldn't have considered these mollusks unless I was considering other mollusks as well, so I guess that's good. Yeah, of course. And I probably, you know, never say never, but beyond the snail, I had no plans to further delve into mollusca, but you've really taken us there, and I appreciate that. Yeah, I feel like after this, I'll be able to provide fun party facts about mollusks And I'll have a sense of an entire phylum of creatures that I didn't really know anything about before, except that when I eat them, they're delicious and that I like things that are delicious. Right. I was thinking through this because I also, there's some benthicness in my animal report. Oh. But I was thinking, wouldn't it be fun to have a benthic zone themed party? So you dress up as your favorite benthic zone creature, and that could be like a tusk shell. It could be a crab. You could even, I would say, you know, we could extend it to if you want to dress up as a walrus. Oh. That would be legit. Because it could also be creatures that enjoy rooting around in the benthic zone. Yeah, that would work for me with my vibrisse. Yeah, you, you've got a good walrus going. So I don't know, benthic zone bash. Just putting that out there. It could be fun. Uh, let's take a break. Hey, Dakota. Arroo! Greetings, Archibald. How's everything? It's another great day, living the carefree and dignified life of a poodle. Et tu, cute? Oh, well, I'm a little bummed. I'm jealous of my human's ability to eat buckets of cheese doodles without worrying about the delicious orange flavor powder getting stuck in their fur. Archibald, you clearly haven't heard about Cheese Doodles for Poodles, the exciting new snack product from Brand Clubby. Arroo! That sounds amazing! Tell me more! The specially formulated flavoring powder contains a proprietary protein compound that prevents the cheese dust from sticking to poodle hair. That's such a good update. A cheesy leg pom-pom is an eyesore. I'm so relieved I can consume cheese doodles without carrying around proof on my poops. The best part is, no matter your poodle style of your gorgeous hair, the cheese dust won't stick. I'm filled with an inner calm I haven't known before. Cheese doodle enjoyment without a risk of a cheesy coat. I'm so filled with excitement I might start crying. Well, shed not a single tear. Brand Clubby once again has both your back and your coat covered with cheese doodles for poodles. Who's who's? Who's who's?
Welcome back to Who's Hoobs. It's a question we all ask ourselves. Every day. Hit me. Okay, Mike. Who's Hoobs? These hooves are even and similar to their common cousin. They resemble cute little heels. These hooves trample all over the savannas and grasslands of sub-Saharan Africa. Fear not. These hooves may support a body that may look scary on account of the tusks and metal hairdos, but I assure you they are peaceful. Hakuna Matata means no worries, but it also means these hooves belong to the... Warthog. Warthog, warthog. You got it. (laughs) We love warthogs. Trample me. Meredith, who's hooves? These hooves are generally black. These hooves are adept at avoiding lionesses. These hooves are the extension of a camouflage experience. These hooves are not striped for success, but the wearer of these hooves is striped for success. Who's hoops? The zebra? Ding, ding, ding. Yes. Hoops, 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 hoops. Who's hoops, hoops, Mike? These hooves are tiny hooves, just like the creature they support. These tiny hooves clip-clop all over the savannas of eastern Africa. Look out, little hooves! Because you are so tiny, you are no contest for leopards, lions, eagles, and hawks. These hooves belong to a creature named after the sound it makes when threatened, a name that rhymes with picnic and also conjures images of male anatomy. Is it the dick dick? It's the dick dick. Who's hooves? Who's hooves? Hoofs up. Hoofs, 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 Okay. Meredith, who's hoofs? These cloven hooves have two toes that spread wide to improve balance. These hooves have rough pads on the bottom of each toe, providing a natural climbing shoe. These hooves can jump nearly 12 feet in a single bound. These hooves are totes rockin'. Do you mean the mountain goat? Ding, 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 Meredith. All right, Mike, who's who's? It's safe to say that these hooves belong to a charismatic megafauna native to the Northern Hemisphere, including North America. These hooves have a lot of work to do holding up a hulking brownish body with some major antlers. Don't let these slow-moving hooves fool you. They can be aggressive if angered or startled. These hooves have the illustrious distinction of actually kind of rhyming with the name of the creature to whom they belong. Moose hooves. Moose hoof, moose hoof, moose hoof. Moose moose, hoof, hoof, moose hoof. (laughs) All right, Meredith, whose hooves? These hooves help keep this giant creature grounded. These hooves help to evenly distribute the creature's weight. These hooves are on a creature that communicates with very low-pitched sounds below the human range of hearing. These hooves are dark in color, just like their owner's unique dark tongue. Giraffe? Oh man. We're both three for three on who's hoofs, Meredith. We're trampling it. Who's hoofs, hoofs, Trample hoofs, it. Hoofs. Hoof, 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 hoof. Who's hoofs? 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 Who's hoofs?
Taxana you. Taxana we. Taxana who. Taxana me. Kingdom. Animalia. All creatures great and small. Phylum. Chordata. Where would we be without our spines? Class. Actinopterygii. You love, you know, raven fishes. Order. Gobiforms. No gas bladders here. Family. Auxudercide cosmopolitan. Ooh la la. Genus. Zappa. Yes, that Zappa. Species. Zappa confluentis. The stuff writes itself. It's the New Guinea slender mudskipper. Is it named after Frank Zappa? It is. Amazing. And the reason why is perfect has nothing to do with the creature itself. It's just because the person who discovered this. I even wrote down his reasons. I like his music. I like his politics and principles. The name is a good one for scientific nomenclature. And he was also just inspired by um, Frank Zappa's, I guess this was in front of the house that he stood up for um, First Amendment rights, so freedom of speech. Because I don't know if you remember, like, maybe this was back in the 80s. It was like Tipper Gore was all anti-bad language on, like, CDs and stuff, parental advisory yeah, labels. Yeah, the parental advisories, sure. Yeah, so Frank Zappa actually spoke at those House hearings and spoke quite eloquently about First Amendment rights. But anyway, so this scientist was very much inspired by... Frank Zappa, though he said he would not call himself like a Zappa freak. He doesn't really know all the lyrics, but he just respects Frank Zappa. But anyhow, I kind of got the idea to do this because we were talking about catfish yesterday. And then I was just like, my fish fins were spinning. And I was like, okay, what else could I do? And then I thought of mudskippers, these weird ass fish that for those of us who grew up watching Ren and Stimpy would have been familiar with from the Muddy Mudskipper show. Were you a Ren and Stimpy fan, Mike? I wasn't necessarily allowed to watch Ren and Stimpy, oh. but I might have seen a little bit of it anyways. I feel like you would have loved it. <laughs> well, I remember it for sure, and I definitely appreciate it as an adult. It's a show. It's like Stimpy's favorite show, the Muddy Mudskipper show. And he's like a real wise-talking mudskipper, someone you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley, for instance. But anyway, let's just quickly go through some tax facts, because I learned a lot through this. So we've actually talked about the class Actinopterygii before, but I think I was mispronouncing it as Actinopterygi, mm. but I actually looked at a phonetic outline of it. Actinopterygi. So these are the ray-finned fishes. So remember, this is like our wolf eel friends, and this is going to be most fish, pretty much all fish. Their fins have the little spiny spines in them, which kind of create that ray formation. The majority of fishes that we know are ray fin fishes, all the fishes that we eat right. for the most part. But then we go on to the order of gobiforms or gobiforms. No gas bladders here, but this is referring to gobies, which I think is a term I've heard used to describe fish before. Like, oh, it's just a little goby, not a guppy, but a goby. Mm. They're small to medium sized fish, just the collective gobies that kind of um, they've got like bigger heads their bodies kind of taper off at the end. And also they're fish that tend to be benthic dwellers because they don't have gas bladders or most of them don't have gas bladders. Not relatable. <laughs> Not at all. I do have a gas bladder. Lord, do I ever. Man, that broccoli I had last night effed my gas bladder up. Anyhow, these guys don't have them, so they don't really have a way to regulate their buoyancy. So they kind of hang out on the ground. Underwater, and in the case of the mudskipper, so cool, they spend a lot of their time on land, out of water, which is crazy. And we'll talk about how that works. 
what I'll do real quick before talking specifically about the Zappa genus and the Zappa confluentis uh, species of mudskipper, I'm just going to talk about some like basic mudskipper facts. So essentially this would be starting at like family, Oxudercidae, very cosmopolitan, but this includes four subfamilies, one of which is the mudskippers. So I'm kind of talking at the general level of subfamily here before we move to the genus of Zappa. So mudskippers. So these guys, like I said, they're kind of like amphibious fishes in that they can obviously breathe underwater, but they also, like I said, have the ability to spend a great deal of time out of the water and breathing on land. And they kind of tend to hang out in these kind of tidal zones when they're not underwater river banks. They can live in tropical, brackish, or freshwater. So essentially like these intertidal areas. Uh, and so you can think of this idea of them being able to be underwater and above water. So if you're living in an intertidal area, that means sometimes because of the cycle of the tides, you'll be underwater and sometimes you'll be out of water, depending on what point you are in the tide cycle. Right. Yeah. So it's a really convenient and evolutionary adaptation that makes perfect sense. That's how animals first got to land because didn't generally animal life started in the ocean. Yeah. And then these kind of fishies, these mud skippers. <laughs> We're likely a sort of intermediate phase. Yeah, it is weird how a subfamily in this case is kind of like poised between land and sea. They kind of represent something caught in between. Sure, a liminal space, if you exactly. will. Exactly. Oh, gosh, I love you've pulled out one of my favorite like academic bullshit buzzwords, liminal space. Anyway, so what do they look like? So they... Essentially, like the main mudskippers you think of and see, they look to me like big ass tadpoles. They've got these big bodies at the top and then they kind of taper off to this tail, similar to what a tadpole looks like. But they've also got these funny, oddly kind of like frog-like eyes, I think, on the head and that you've got like the head, but the eyes aren't kind of implanted in. They kind of protrude from the top. It kind of looks like in their creation, the eyes were just kind of like stuck on at the end. <laughs> just like sure. plopped on top of the head. Sure. Super weird. Also, what's so super weird about these guys is their pectoral fins. So normally we just think of pectoral fins. They're often on the smaller side, depending on the species of the fish. But these are weird in that there's like two separate segments to them. So you've got the radial and the ray. And it almost forms something similar to like an elbow. So they're able to essentially pull themselves around, mud skip, if you will. Skip that mud. Yeah. Essentially using these modified pectoral fins that actually possess a great deal of strength and agility. And I read they can leap up to like two feet and they're able to even climb trees with these things. It's crazy. I think it's curious that they're getting up on their ray fins because I feel like a lot of the times where I've encountered mudskippers or other such creatures in the past, they've been lobe-finned. Interesting. Yeah. And I think that I remember seeing something that there was sort of an evolutionary line that you could draw from lobe-finned fishes through towards tetrapods and things like that. Whoa. Whoa. That's mind-blowing. I might be misremembering. Yeah. I just... I don't know that any mudskippers are classified under the lobe finned, though. That's the only thing that's throwing up a red flag to me. Okay. 
because I just because I mean I could totally be wrong because when you're at Actinopterygii, that's where it separates between ray-finned and lobe-finned fishes, and then the mudskippers don't come into play until subfamily. Hmm. If that makes sense. Sure. Interesting. Lines of inquiry everywhere, guys. Yeah, they're <laughs> abundant. Well, and you know, also what may have happened in the Cambrian may not be what's happening now. You know what sure. I mean? Oh yeah. Absolutely, of course. <laughs> Who knows what was going on there? Now we can talk about everybody's favorite subject, mud skipper love. That's definitely your favorite subject. Yours too, come on. I know, I do like it. I do like finding out about how these animals get together and make babies. Very interesting stuff. Okay, so mudskipper love. So the males tend to um, generally be kind of brown, you know, just muddy brown. <laughs> In the mating season, they develop red, green, and blue spots on their body to attract females. And then they also do these, the Wikipedia article describes as body undulations and different postures and energetic movements to attract a female. So this just sounds like any of us on the dance floor, right? Yeah, for sure. But then I watched a video of some mudskippers. I think they were off one of the coasts of Japan. They use their little, their crazy bodies and their crazy elbow arms to fling themselves like way up in the air and they like flop around up in the air and then flop back down to the ground. It just looks very silly. And then there's like a bunch of them doing it at the same time and they like flop onto each other and get upset about it. It's woohoo! Yeah! Woo! Ah! So hopefully, if they're doing their dance moves correctly, the lady will pick her mate and she follows him into his burrow. So I just got to talk about these burrows real quick. This description is said that many times these burrows will have high vaulted ceilings. And I was like, oh, I would love to follow a mud skipper into that gothic burrow he's built for me. I love that idea of the artisan mud skipper painting the equivalent of the Sistine Chapel. Yes, with this highly articulated weird fish fin. I mean, totally possible. And they actually, too, get more moisture because they always have to stay moist. I didn't say this earlier. So they're able to spend a lot of time on land, but they always need to be pretty moist. So when they're feeling like they're going to dry out, they'll kind of like roll around on their backs in the mud to re-moisten, as it were. Cute. So they're not uh, unfamiliar with being on their back like Michelangelo. Relatable. So back to Mudskipper Love. So she follows him into his vaulted gothic burrow, lays her eggs, hundreds of them. He will then fertilize the eggs. And then not long after that, she'll just kind of peace out and leave him with all the eggs that he is then supposed to protect. So it's a little bit like seahorses then. Yeah, a little bit. That the dude takes the brood. Dude takes the brood. I I wrote here, dude protects the brood. Mm. Real quick, a little bit more about their ability to live on land. So I talked about having to kind of moisten their skin and all of that. But they're also able to breathe partly with water that they trap in their gill chambers. So if you look at these guys, it kind of looks like they're holding like air in their cheeks, kind of like a chipmunk holds a bunch of nuts in its cheeks. Okay. So they've kind of got these puffed out faces. And I think that is the water that's trapped in their gill chambers. Or it could also be what we're seeing when they kind of like open their mouths and take like big breaths of water. They're able to breathe through both their skin and the mucosa lining of the mouth. Wow. But I don't really understand how that works, like where the gill chambers are. There really wasn't much like about anatomy and how the gill chambers work. But essentially, 
need moisture. That's how they breathe. But it seems like they don't need a whole, whole, whole lot. Or their ability to turn that moisture into life sustainment is very efficient. Okay. They still have gills. They don't actually breathe air. They can't just kind of open their mouth and suck in some air. They need to have a little bit of water to get their air. Yeah, that yes. I think that's exactly correct. What I'm confusing here as I'm thinking about this is just in this video I watched, they open their mouths real big, almost like they are sucking in air. So I don't know what's going I just don't know what's going on. Sure. It's very weird. Yet again, befuddling creatures all around. <laughs> But as far as this whole Zappa thing, I talked about it a little bit, but it seems like I read this on like a site from what looked like 1996, like hadn't been updated since then. The title was A Fish Named Zappa. And it was just talking about this guy, a scientist who was off the coast of Papua New Guinea, and he sees all these little tiny mud skippers flapping around in the water, and he looks more closely at them and realizes that it looks like an undiscovered species, essentially. I guess they take them in and... Science happens, and then it's like 10 years later, a postdoc is looking at these guys and actually realizes that they're even more distinct than just being at the level of species, that they were so... They needed their own genus to account for. Um, I don't know how to talk about this. Well, I guess for the differences between, like, there were enough variations between this species and other species within the genus... I guess. ...that they felt the need to classify this species in its own genus? I think so. So I'm really very unclear. I'm sure there is. Well, you could say that through additional research, further resolution within the taxon of this creature's family was resolved. And that as part of the process for finding this higher level of resolution, that they found it necessary to designated in its own genus perfectly stated thank you for the assist i'm like sure i'm flailing like a goddamn mud skipper over here this is just really well you heard my presentation <laughs> stop i didn't even have a species <laughs> i was just like uh here's two classes that i kind of half understand you know we're just winging it today we're thinning it yeah is oh yeah so they developed this new genus and then that's where the guy was like i just like zappa Let's name it Zappa. What it said was that the distinguishing feature for this Zappa mudskipper, the slender New Zealand mudskipper, is that I think on its, would that be dorsal fin, there's a distinct feature about how one of the spines in the, like the ray of the fin, how one of the spines actually bends. (laughs) I'm going to talk real specific here. Yes, distinguished by a particular morphological difference within the dorsal fin. I love that. But they're also very small, too. So I think some of the bigger mudskippers get up to two feet. But I think these are just like an inch and a half, which is pretty tiny. Oh, yeah. They're like the same length as a typical aplacophoran. So funny. I was assuming the aplacophora to be like so tiny for some reason. I think that one of the things that I've really learned from my mollusk journey is that there are a lot of very tiny mollusk planktons, like in their larval stage. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I'm thinking of. Anyhow, um, do you have any questions? Not really. I mean, I guess that uh, mudskippers, I do think of Ren and Stimpy when I think of mudskippers, that's for sure. Yeah. It's muddy. Mudskipper, it's muddy. Mudskipper, 
And like I said, I'm now a little curious about this because I just have it in my head that the lobe fins are better for climbing around on mud, but you've made me think that mud skippers are now all ray finned fishes. So I just have lines of inquiry now that I thought yeah. I kind of understood something, but maybe I'm wrong or maybe I'm like half right. Maybe, you know, I, I guess I'm just curious, what is the moment where I read about this thing? Or maybe it's something like, um, because I didn't do any research into um, the non, like the lobe finned fishes. So there could be some sort of like convergent evolution kind of thing or just similar behaviors that there are lobe fin fishes perhaps that are kind of land and sea dwellers that also locomote via a lobe fin, but I'm, I'm just not sure. So it could be something that's just very similar to the mudskipper, but isn't a ray finned fish. I see. That morphologically is similar, right. but is not actually the same creature. Right. Well, that's all really interesting. Thanks for all of that information, <laughs> Meredith. You're welcome. Uh, break time? Yeah. Hey, Jerry. What are those stickers you have plastered all over your trapper keeper? Manny, Manny, I'd ask that you not use the word trapper around me. As a beaver, I find the word very triggering. Besides, this isn't a trapper keeper. It's a beaver binder. My apologies, Jerry. My keen stork vision has once again blinded me to the experience of other creatures. It's cool, Manny. But if you must ask, these stickers are my new Desmond decals. They come from Brand Clubby's fun new line of creature-themed paper goods and novelties, Platypapyrus. Do you mean that Brand Clubby has now entered the market of boutique stationery? My, oh my, what can't they do? You can say that again. What can't Brad Clubby do? I was being facetious, Manny. Oh, well, tell me more about Desmond decals. Well, Manny, surely you know about the Desmond delirium that has been sweeping the ponds lately. Um, sure. Yeah. Well, Brand Clubby wasted no time in bringing us what we have all been clamoring for, Desmond merch. Now pond dwellers like you and me can show our devotion to Desmond's with Desmond decals. But I don't have a home like you. I live on a wing and a prayer. I just have my feathers and my strong stork spirit. Calm down, Manny. Brand Clubby has included feather-safe adhesives so you can festoon your entire body with adorable Desmond designs. Their decal collections include Desmond's in the Den, Desmond's in Repose, and Desmond's at the Beach. So I'm sure there's an adorable Desmond in there that any self-respecting stork would be proud to wear. Um, yeah, Jerry, I can't wait to cover myself in stickers? These aren't stickers, Manny. They're Desmond decals and they are great. You should speed on over to your nearest brand clubby retailer and get your own before they run out. What is that smell? Well, it seems to be some sort of grain, maybe a oat. Oh, yummy. Just feed bag. We're in the feed, bag, feed bag, Meredith. I mean, come on. Yeah, it's obvious. All right. Well, we've got a question from Georgette from Fort Lauderdale, who would like to know what animal we would most like to join us on a road trip. I'm going to go ahead and say peregrine falcon. Wow. And here's why. Sometimes you're in the middle of a place 
take Pennsylvania, for instance. We've both driven through Pennsylvania on the highway. Absolutely. And there are parts of Pennsylvania where you get pretty far between stops. And sometimes your next chance at a fast food experience is an hour away. Uh Uh-huh. And I think that a Peregrine Falcon would make a very useful scout where they could kind of fly ahead and determine how what's going on, how far is the nearest Burger King, like what's happening. And then they can fly back to the car because they're just so fast. I feel like they'd be able to kind of like scout and do reconnaissance missions, if you will. Wow. That's so good. I hadn't really thought about it like that, but that's super useful. It's very utilitarian. I like that. I like that a lot. And that's great. Sometimes that's, you know, we need utilitarian personalities on our road trips. I guess I was thinking a lot more along the lines of, like, car companionship. Oh. And, you know, funny car antics. In which case, I really want just a dog who's happy to wear goggles and wants to stick his head out the window and let his tongue flap around so I can laugh at it. Is it a particular type of dog that you have in your vision? Probably one with floppy ears because floppy dog ears in the wind at a car window is just, in, I mean, endlessly adorable and hilarious to me. So, I mean, a very preschool answer here, but I just, I just want something that's going to make me laugh and warm my heart. Yeah, I mean, I'd be okay with that, but I'm still going to go with a peregrine falcon. No, I really, really dig that answer, and I really um, respect you for choosing that. <laughs> Thanks. So our fish position is that Meredith's going to take a floppy-eared dog. That's okay with wearing goggles. Yeah, and I'm going to take a peregrine falcon. That's great. Who also will probably be wearing goggles, ideally. Bear! Wait, what was the Peregrine Falcon product from Brand Clubby? I think it was Dive Goggles, actually. Oh, yeah, Dive Goggles. Raptor Specs, I think, was the name of it. Yeah. Well, tune in next week to hear about Raptor Specs. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. So Davey from the Navy asks, is fashionable footwear limited to plantigrade animals? Oh, no, Davey. Let's do a quick little recap. So plantigrade, like humans are plantigrade. Their feet are firmly on the ground. Right. And then we have digitigrade, where they're kind of up on their toes, like cats or dogs. Right. And then we have undulagrade, where they're on their, like, tippy toes, like horses and giraffes. And we talked, we did a hoofs hoofs earlier today. Right, right. So we all know about hoofs and artiodactyla. And Exactly. So I would say, you know, again, I always talk about this, revisit old editions of Who's Hooves to hear me talk about this. But I do love that the hooves of the pig and people in the pig family, bovines, that I love that they look like they are just perfectly suited for heels. Yeah, they really are. Shaped perfectly for heels. Can't put lipstick on a pig. Or I guess you could put lipstick on a pig, but honey, you don't need to. She's already got heels on. You can't put lipstick on a pig, but you can dress a pig up in Louboutins. It's just the old adage suggests. So, Davy, our fish position on this one's pretty simple. No, fashionable footwear is not limited to plantigrade animal. Definitely not. Ding, 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 ding. ding. So, Alvin from Memphis asks... What animal would the spirit of Little Richard be most likely to inhabit? Wow. Maybe a meerkat? (gasps) 
Meerkats are so fun. And they're very, they're full personality. Just like little Richard. That's a hard question. Yeah, it's a little. Which animal has that moxie? I kind of was thinking initially, like, the playfulness of an otter, but, like, the ostentatiousness of, like, a scarlet macaw. Oh, I like that. Like, the fine squawkability of the scarlet macaw. So I would probably, it'd be like, um, it would be like one of those Greek hybrid creatures, the scarlet macaw otter mix. Sure, a, a chimera. Yeah, a chimera. Chimera, thank yeah. you. I've been having trouble with the C-H-I, pronouncing it as chi instead of ch. I know. That's been a theme. It's true. And I also saw that both hoofs, like the plural of a hoof, can either be hoofs or hooves. Both are acceptable. Mm. What word soup we've drowned in. I think that we've reinforced constantly that like we're just figuring this right. out. It's clear that we don't know any it's of not this, like you know. People are and like we're trying to pronounce these words. You know? He's talking about ungulates enough. No. Right. Hard G or soft G. Right. Um anyhow, so what so what do we have here for Alvin in Memphis as far as the creature that uh, yeah. Little R- little Richard's uh, spirit would go on to inhabit. Yeah, I don't know that it is an extant species. He's more than like a five creature Greek hybrid, but for now, I think I'm gonna go with the Scarlet Macaw otter hybrid. Yeah, I would say that that feels reasonable to me. I might throw in like a little bit of dachshund. Okay, I like that. Like nipping at your heels, you know? Yeah, sure. And then also some sort of like peacock, just like full, like, wow, look at me. Yeah, yeah. That would be great with the Scarlet Macaw. Just really take it over the edge. I love it. Yeah. Uh, that's the official position. Fish position. Ding a ling a ding dong. Ding a ling a ding. Dingy ding. <laughs> Keep the questions coming. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, enjoy the infomercial next week. We'll be back for a regular episode after that. And how. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.